Welcome to N20XX. This series takes the listener, year by year, into the future. From 2040 to 2195. If you like emerging tech, ecotech, futurism, permaculture, apocalyptic survival scenarios, and disruptive science, sit back and enjoy short stories that showcase my research into how the future may play out. This episode continues the story of Beth, now 13 years old. Her story begins with the episode titled In 2044 Civil War. Duncan can't go outside because of the wind. The sky remains dark all day. He avoids the windows but sometimes he has a look. The debris flying by is frightening. It sounds like waves hit the building. Crashing, howling, and pelting blend into continuous background noise. He curls into a round mound under a blanket on the floor. How many of the buildings on his street will get damaged? He's lived in Portland all his life and some of the most memorable buildings have been destroyed. He closes his small eyes tight. This 12-story building houses one squatter or a family of squatters per floor. Duncan has the eighth floor to himself. The sound of glass breaking sends him searching from room to room. Wind gushes down the main hall. In apartment 805 the wind throws objects around. He closes the door to the bedroom where the glass was broken. Dozens of objects fall to the floor. In the hall, he hears voices. He unlatches the door to the stairwell and opens it. The mother and five kids from the 11th floor carry belongings down the stairs. Their hair and clothes are wet and disheveled. He asks, what happened? She says, didn't you hear it? The roof is gone. We're going to stay in the parking garage tonight. He says, just don't go outside. People are blown off the street. She gives him a concerned look. Huddled under his blanket, he watches his foldable with the cracked screen. He searches for how to earn some money fast. A company is offering $100 for a person's DNA. He signs up and orders the kit. After working as a janitor for 20 years at Quantarium Field, robots do all the janitorial work now. To kill time, he watches turntube videos that all end with busted. Other solar systems busted, microorganisms busted, continental drift busted, evolution busted. Through better and worse times, these videos always cheer him up. Two days later when the winds die down and the roads are cleared by robots, a giantess robot knocks on the steel stairwell door. His foldable chimes, you have a delivery. He jogs from room 810 to the door, unlocks it, and opens it to the robot. This is one of the smaller models, made to carry smaller parcels. It has a spoked wheel in the middle and a leg on each side. It says, I have a package for Duncan Rankin. If you're him, how would you like to validate? Duncan says, face scan. A second later a door on the robot's torso pivots open. The robot reaches in, pulls out a small package, and hands it to Duncan. The robot says, this delivery includes a prepaid envelope. 
I can wait here for 30 minutes for you to complete the kit instructions and give the return envelope to me. Duncan says, yes, please wait. He opens the kit on his couch, places a short tube on his stomach, and pushes the button at the end. The tube makes a snap sound. A clear circle on the tube turns blue. Duncan reads aloud, a blue dot indicates the DNA sample is secure. He pulls the tube away and a droplet of blood clings to his stomach skin. He places the bandage that came in the kit, on the micro-wound, slides the tube into the envelope, and walks to the robot. Here you go. The robot takes his package. I'll deliver your package. The robot doesn't have a head. A small screen where a neck would be shows a smiley emoji. That evening $100 appears in his account. He orders groceries and a replacement cartridge for his electric power box. He still has $47 left over. He laughs irritably. When he had a job, everything was painfully expensive. Now that he can't find work everything is unbelievably cheap. He says, AR glasses. On his foldable, a list appears. He taps on the giantess option and orders the $40 pair of AR glasses. Two hours later, a robot waits at the stairwell door. Duncan gives it a used power cartridge for planned return delivery and accepts the groceries, charged cartridge, and AR glasses. When he puts on the glasses, a welcome screen lights up, appearing to float two feet in front of him. He slides to the edge of the couch and leans forward. He follows the steps to set the glasses up then plays around with the AR interface. For the first time since he became a squatter, he decorates his home. But the clock and art that he chooses for the walls can only be seen when he wears the glasses. He throws his hands in the air like an excited young boy. Early afternoon turns to night without notice as he discovers dozens of useful apps. He falls asleep late and wakes early. On the browser that floats in front of him, he searches for, paid today make money online, but he finds nothing new. When he moves his hand from left to right, a side menu opens. That's a surprise. He taps the air to choose, games. AI places the games it thinks he'll like the most, at the top of the list. He wriggles on the couch like a child on Christmas morning and taps on the one at the top of the list, Ghost Hunter. After it installs, it suggests that the player go outside to play. Duncan hasn't been outside for a few weeks. He wanders from one pile of clothes to another, sniffing shirts and pants and then changing. Outside, the cold air blows hard. Branches, shingles, and other debris scattered over the sidewalk offer an obstacle course. A utility vehicle clears debris from the street. Arms on the front pick items up and drop them through an opening in the back. A robot at the end of a boom arm replaces window glass on a third floor. Two kids pick through a pile. Duncan straightens the glasses on his face and says, Ghost Hunter. A mystery-style theme song plays for two bars. Duncan faces semi-skyward and moves his arms in front of his face as he chooses options. In the AR, a man with a handlebar mustache and a gentleman's raincoat shows him the command gestures. He tries them out then taps on, start. 
All the game graphics disappear. Duncan says, huh, and looks around. Did the game crash? From the partly collapsed building nearest to him a sound of squeaking makes him turn and take a few steps backward, toward the street. All the first-story windows except one are broken out. The one window that still has glass displays movement. He squints, trying to make out what it is. What could have been the reflection of clouds, on closer inspection, is a grey-toned woman with long, curly hair and a ruffled nightgown staring at Duncan with a deadpan expression. He's about to turn and walk away. Wait, is she in the game? Going against his sense of city etiquette, he continues watching her. She slowly smiles and lifts one arm. Blood drips off the knife she clutches. This is it. He makes a gesture, and a bronze spray container appears in his hand. He can't feel it but it looks real. He pulls its trigger to spray holy water at the ghost. The mist travels toward the woman even though a strong wind blows across its path. The woman sneers. Veins rise on her forehead. She cringes more than humanly possible. Duncan makes a gesture like he's clutching a stick. A wooden cross, painted gold, appears in his hand. He holds it forth. The ghost turns to the side, lifts her arms, and drops her knife. Her mouth opens to a cave of sharpened teeth. She glares at him, shrieks, and flies out of the window. Duncan hoots as she flies circles through the air, higher and higher, and spins off over a rooftop. He makes the motion of drawing a gun from his belt and is thrilled to see the silver bullet revolver glimmering in his hand. He tries firing a shot. Bang! The end of the old-time revolver issues lovely white curls of smoke. The kids nearby stare at Duncan. Cassie works in the largest prison in the Portland area. With a prominent brow and rough cheeks, she maintains a stern expression, watching a line of five new inmates walk from the bus into the prison. Though towering, windowless walls surround her, the wind reaches down, yanking at her pants and sleeves and patting her face with cold air. The five femme inmates have pasty skin and twitch. Two guards stand on either side and Cassie follows from behind as they lead the five into the building. Twelve new standalone robots line the wall. With their arms and torsos folded up, they look like mini-cars or mini-tanks even. When unfolded, they stand three feet high and have six arms that can detain several people at once. The other kind of standalone has legs and looks humanoid like the cop bots Cassie sees in town. When everyone's inside, the door slides shut and locks behind Cassie, cutting off the bitter wind. The group walks into the inspection room. One of the inmates makes a heaving cry and falls, hitting the ground hard and flipping around on the floor. Samantha, another guard with square features and a perfectly ironed uniform, shouts, Code 7. Cassie and Lou holler, get against the wall. By gesture, they direct the four other inmates away from the femme flopping around on the floor. Cassie maintains an outer calm but her heart pounds and her thoughts race. Two unfolded standalones and a nurse enter. The nurse says, B88, soft restrain. She points at the one on the floor. A bot rolls forward, 
and four of its arms extend. Padded cuffs on the ends clasp onto the femme. The arms allow some movement, so the inmate won't damage herself while convulsing. Though the robot's arms sway, its base, close to the floor, doesn't move a hair. The nurse kneels by the inmate. She checks the skin on the inner arms and inside the mouth. She reaches into a bag and pulls out a plastic box. Samantha steps with her feet apart and places her fists on her hips. She says, you're not going to give her crushies are you? Not looking up, the nurse says, you need to read the weekly brief. The president herself said crushy addicts in prison get their dose. This is the last time I argue this with you. Samantha says, it's still an illegal drug. You shouldn't even have it on you. Preparing a syringe, the nurse says, crushy addicts die within 12 hours of not getting their dose. Not some of them, 96% of them. She injects the inmate. Samantha says, so we're just a drug hotel now. The nurse says, take it to your supervisor. B88 release. The robot opens its cuffs. The inmate's arms and legs fall to the floor. The robot's arms fold back. Cassie keeps an eye on the other four, gripping her toes tightly inside her boots. Due to the robot retrofit, the guard's break room has been closed. Cassie and Samantha sit together in the library eating lunch. The windows next to the ceiling are so short, Cassie can't tell if they're windows or just recessed lights. All the books rest on Wilcart's shelves which haven't been rolled out of this room in at least a decade. A faded sign on a bare shelf reads, Magazines. Samantha says, Femme, this place is dusty. Cassie laughs. Samantha says, Do you know what you're going to do? Cassie says, I have no clue. I already know I don't want to work on robots. I don't even want to boss one around. Samantha says, public schools are opening again. Teachers were hard hit by the attack. She dry laughs. I'm not surprised. Cassie peels the crust off her sandwich and says, I could never be a teacher. Samantha says, not teachers. The kids will all be plugged into online courses. They're hiring people to oversee the kids. They need people to stop fights, confiscate drugs, and take attendance. Sound familiar? Cassie and Samantha look at each other and laugh deeply. Cassie says, that's too perfect. Samantha says, you can even pack heat. At the dermatologist, Cassie lies back. Her doctor removes the tattoo near her right eye. Painkillers silence feeling in that area. Gang tattoos on a police officer were always a problem. For years she's covered up the ones on her face with makeup, but skin replacement is becoming a well-known option. Pigment and scar tissue are removed, and stem cells are grown into skin, layer by layer. She thought all the tattoos on her face could be removed in one visit. How wrong she was. An area the size of the tip of her pinky can be treated at a time. It'll take a year of weekly visits for her face. She may have her hands done after that but probably not. 
You're going to have baby skin on your face, Samantha says when she finds out. Does this mean you're going to play the fields again? Cassie slowly shakes her head. Samantha says, you may as well. I won't leave you alone until you try just once. The new skin itches. Topical spray helps. Who doesn't daydream of new skin all over? Everyone's seen the video of the burn victim who had 70% of her skin regrown. Now that femme is in jewelry commercials. To be fair, she was beautiful before the fire. Then there's the femme who ran into a burning building because she wanted new skin like the one in the commercials. And beards and baldness are going away. Some opt to have hair follicles removed from their face instead of shaving every day. Baldness can be cured by taking a pill. The government is assuming care of unclaimed property. It conducts a census, searching for heirs of property whose owners died. When there are no heirs, the U.S. claims ownership. In areas marked for new neighborhoods, the U.S. chases squatters off then sells to developers. If you're lucky enough to own property in one of those areas and sell, enjoy being rich for the rest of your life. Robots can build an entire building without a single human stepping onto the property. Robots can build the way humans have but they improve their performance when given robot-centric building styles. Instead of stacking object on object, floor upon floor, buildings are woven and spray applied. Because new plans can be drawn up in seconds, each building looks unique, much more so than ever before. Software can generate infinite versions of the same kind of building. Procedural variety finds its way out of gaming and VR and into real life. New materials are used that human builders would have had a hard time working with. Hundreds of robots can lock building components together all at the same time. Planks and sheets remain available only so repairs can be made to legacy buildings. The government has a surplus of old buildings. Old apartments and offices can be converted into schools, warehouses, and care centers. The media attack left many children without parents. This could be a problem that'll devastate the US in the future if left alone. As police forces are re-established, orphan children are found and placed in care centers that open in buildings originally built for other purposes. When possible, the care centers open next to schools. To solve for a lack of teachers, public school systems adopt what homeschoolers have used for decades. Christian and libertarian home educators have developed online schooling. Parables Education is the largest provider of complete online education services. The U.S. copies Parables Education to develop its own K-12, universal, secular education. When the schools reopen, every group that doesn't want to commit their children to secular education fights the government. Rather than opening schools for each group, kids go to the same buildings and parents can decide which online education their kids will enroll in. On her first day as class monitor, wearing a dark blue collar shirt and black slacks, Cassie sits at her desk feeling nostalgic for her surroundings. This desk was a real teacher's desk. The teacher used those marker boards on the wall and probably hung posters. 30-13-year-olds sit at desks, wearing VR headsets, moving arms in the air, 
and speaking but not hearing each other. Cassie wears headphones and watches a monitor on her desk that cycles through each student's online activity. Though all the kids are the same age the grades level range from 5th to 8th, 10 are in Christian programs and 20 are in the Universal program. The Universal looks harder, heavy on science and math. Kids work in VR environments with the avatars of children in their grade range. Assistants help each student. These take the form of adult avatars. Cassie can tell the assistants are AI. They never leave their teacher role. Their emotions are always upbeat. With regret, Cassie remembers how all her teachers overlooked her when she was in school. The VR assistants show each student unfaltering support. Two of the kids are leaps and bounds ahead of the rest. Shannon speaks with sign language and avatars in her class sign back. Shannon has parents, but Beth, the other advanced kid, lives in the care center across the alley. Beth's program introduces her to a simulation of atoms. The AI instructor, whose eyes are barely visible under wild, hairy eyebrows, explains how the simulation can show protein folding, ionization, and atomic decay. He says, this may seem like a simple simulation but it's cutting edge. Subatomic activity can get very noisy. So many things change how other things behave, the computer has to work very hard. Cassie experiences cognitive relief when the monitor switches to another student. Her screen shows an animation of Jesus standing with Columbus on the deck of a wooden ship. Cassie knows it's Columbus because Jesus keeps saying, well Mr. Columbus. Both smile as they look at Greenland across the water. Well Mr. Columbus, all this is for you and those like you. Do the kids know who are the best students and who are the worst? They'll have to find out on their own because Cassie won't tell. She doesn't plan on talking to these kids unless she has to. She's never had kids. She doesn't even have pets. A window pops up on her monitor, recess in 20 minutes. The timer counts down. Just before the timer is up, all the kids are told they can take a break, each in their own learning environment. When they take their headsets off, their hair sticks out. Cassie tries to soften her expression because she isn't talking to prisoners anymore. She says, all right everyone. Let's go to the field. Stay calm. Walk, don't run. The field behind the school could use some groundskeeping. Multi-story buildings on all sides box it in. As her 30 kids wander out onto the field, Cassie goes to stand with Beyonce who also worked in prisons. Most of the kids stick near the entrance. Girls clump together. The biggest, oldest boys play tackle football further out, in the middle of the field. Cassie says, all the kids avoid those big kids. Beyonce, with dozens of piercings and wearing a bright purple windbreaker, says, they don't want to become target practice. Half the kids wear AR glasses. Those are the kids who have parents or someone looking after them. The others all live in the care center. Beyonce says, there goes Psycho. Cassie says, what? Beyonce points at the girl wearing boys' clothes crossing the field headed straight for the football game. Cassie says, she's one of mine. Her name is Beth. 
Cassie feels a pang of grief. Beyonce says, just watch her. Beth walks right through the football game. The boys fall over each other avoiding her while continuing to play and pretending not to see her. She takes her time all the way out to the other side, next to the alley where she turns and stares at them like a child figure from a horror film. Cassie says, is she trying to lure them? Beyonce says, she'll do it several times, walking through their game. They never acknowledge her but they stay the hell away from her. Cassie says, I never. She hasn't felt this nervous in years. Beyonce says, one day they're knocking her down in the hall like they do to all the other kids, the next day they all steer clear of her. Beyonce says, they found her out in the woods. She was surviving on her own. Cassie says, when was this? Beyonce says, before they brought her to the care center. Shannon runs up to Cassie and signs. Cassie's AR glasses pick up the gestures and convert them to text. I need to use the bathroom. Cassie says, go ahead but come back here before break is over. An avatar in Shannon's AR glasses converts Cassie's words to sign language. The girl nods and heads inside. In the care center mess hall, kids wait impatiently in line. They point at vats of food and kitchen robots scoop it onto polyfoil trays. Most of the kids are desperately concerned with who they'll sit with. Beth sits in the far corner, away from everyone else. While eating, she watches an old foldable that rests on the table. The windows are painted over. Initial scratches on the tabletop barely show. A pipe near the ceiling drips. One of the high school kids takes a seat beside her. Continuing to watch her foldable, Beth smells of family mustiness. The freckle-faced girl smiles past her sneer. She says, I heard what you did to the football players. Beth stops chewing. She looks the girl over. The girl says, look, I and my friend know how to get some money. Beth looks back at her food and says, no thank you. The girl says, just hear me out. You've seen the crushy addicts around here. We're going to rob a crushies dealer. I don't know about you but I watched my parents killed by crushies. Beth says, why don't you report them to the police? The girl says, you know that doesn't work. But the dealer's money doesn't belong to the dealer. It belongs to the one above them. Beth says, what do you want me to do? The girl laughs and says, you're small. We need you to fit through a vent near a door so you can unlock it from the inside and let us in. Look, if you're interested, meet me at the second floor bathroom. The table shifts as the girl gets up and leaves. Beth looks at the kids on the other side of the room. None of them pay any attention to Beth. The girl's name is Rhonda. They climb out a second-story window onto a centerpost ladder held by a boy who stands on the ground. Rhonda goes first then Beth climbs down. The pole in the middle holds flat bars that she can place her feet on. The boy lays the ladder on the ground, folds the flat bars against the centerpost, then folds the centerpost up. Carb weave makes the ladder light and strong. He sticks it in his backpack 
swings the backpack over his shoulder, and says, let's go. His elbows and knees stick out and his sleeves and pant legs are too short revealing wrists and ankles. He wears AR glasses. All three head down the alley and between two buildings. Rhonda says, Beth, this is Travis. Beth says, you're not from the care center. Travis says, no. Beth says, how old are you? Travis says, 19. Beth says, where'd you get that ladder? Both Travis and Rhonda laugh. He says, I know what I'm doing, okay? This isn't my first time. They walk through a squatter neighborhood to avoid cams. Most of the windows are dark. Each building could be utterly empty or crowded with a gang of robbers. An old woman sits on the sidewalk arranging a line of dolls in front of her. Travis says, let's move to the left. Cam on the right. Beth says, how do you know that? He says, it's a buzzsaw app. My AR glasses point out where cams are. She says, buzzsaw. He says, he's a hacker. Have you heard of Medusa? A couple of times I found a cam and added it to the app. Rhonda says, I want a pair of AR glasses. He says, after tonight you can afford a pair. They cross through an area where bars and clubs light up the streets. Hearing the hilarity of nightlife, they take an alley. A head of femme lies on the road, head leaning against a building. Travis hurries forward saying, look, a roboticist all passed out. The three reach her. Blonde locks of a fresh perm hang over her face. She wears a fur coat, a fat gold watch, and lots of jewelry. Travis looks up and down the alley. Rhonda moves closer to the woman. Beth says, what are you doing? Rhonda laughs and says, taking her shit of course. Beth walks back the way they came. Rhonda calls after her, hey, don't go. She's not going to miss her jewelry. These roboticists have all kinds of money they don't know what to do with. Beth marches back to the care center, scowling with frustration. Rhonda and Travis jog to catch up. Rhonda says, okay scout, we didn't take anything from her. Beth says, no victims. Travis and Rhonda both say, okay, fine. Down the street from the two-story building where drug deals are made, the three stay low behind a totaled car. Travis says, there's two of them. They don't live in that building, they just work out of there. See how the cars come up to make the deal. It's like a drive through Rhonda says, we know someone who buys from them and they said the sellers keep their stash on the second floor. The first floor is gutted. There's no back door. Travis says, see how that one went in. He takes the money inside. The three cross the street and walk on the same side as the dealers, close to the buildings. They walk through a lot full of giant piles of garbage and take a side door into a building. Tall Travis leads. Rhonda says, this building is right next to their building. They step on loose bricks and climb a stairway. Spots of light from the street illuminate crumbled walls. Beth looks all over, checking for any pairs of eyes. 
They reach the third floor and drop out a window onto a roof. The tar surface feels like a soft mat. They walk out to a roof access door on what looks like a shed. Travis reaches the door and kneels and Rhonda joins him. When Beth reaches them, Travis points to a vent near the door and whispers, the door is locked but we can remove this vent cover. Do you think you can fit through that opening? Beth says, I'll try. He says, after you get in, you can open the door from the inside. It's a fire exit so you should be able to open it from the inside. His chest heaves. Rhonda scowls and chews her lower lip. The cover is held on with two screws, missing four screws. He finger loosens the screws and pulls the cover off. He and Rhonda step back and Beth sticks her head through, into darkness. The air is warmer and smells dusty. Her shoulders hold her back. With some squeezing, wriggling, and help from the other two, Beth pushes through to her elbows. She pulls her arms all the way through and then can slide the rest of the way. She comes through onto the hard floor. She gets on her knees, looks back out the opening, and says, it's totally dark in here. I hear voices downstairs. Rhonda makes a gesture like she's clapping encouragement. Travis says, they have to go back out front. Wait until the voices go away then open the door. When all she hears is silence, she stands and feels for the door. The push bar handle has a thick chain wrapped around it. The chain also wraps around a beam near the wall and a lock as big as her fist holds the chain in place. She tries pushing the handle but it barely gives. Rhonda's head sticks partly through the opening. Beth quietly says, it's chained. Rhonda's head disappears. A moment later Travis's head sticks through the opening. He says, we don't have to give up. My friend is sure they keep all the money on a table in the back on the second floor. Sneak down the stairs, look to see that no one is there, and take the money. It'll only take a minute. Behind him, Rhonda whispers, give her a weapon. He says, I'm not giving her my gun. He frowns and screws up his lips. His head retracts then his arm and head reappear. He says, here, take this. His voice sounds strained. He hands her a hammer. Beth grabs it and says, okay, I'll try. He says, good. She feels her way over garbage on the concrete steps. Light increases the lower she goes. Soon, she can piece together the floor, gutted of interior walls. Bands of lights move through the space when car lights move past outside. Besides a couch, a table, and some piles of garbage, the second floor is empty. The stairs continue down to the first floor. She takes a step, sits, watches, listens, and takes the next step. Someone out front barks a command. A femme's high-pitched voice complains. A car stereo thuds. She reaches the floor and walks over to the table. The hammer in her hand feels heavy. Guns and knives take up one area of the table. Clear bags of powdery blocks and pills take up another area. 
In the middle, a splayed canvas bag holds loader cards and rolled up bills. Something growls and snarls behind her. Time drops to a crawl. Throwing her hand over her mouth, she turns around. A dog standing nearly as tall as her steps out of the darkness. She's seen fierce dogs before but never like this. It's all muscle and as bulky as a lion. The dog's scalp quivers and its lips flare out, showing all its teeth. Three things happen at once. It barks, it leaps forward, and Beth drives the hammer down with all her might. On the street out front, the conversation stops. Beth's story will be continued in a future episode. Thank you for listening. I will never run ads on this podcast. Please take the time to rate, review, and subscribe so that more future-minded people can find this show. My landing page is solomeshun.com. There, you can find the companion website to this podcast that includes a timeline and illustrations.